This is the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Tom Church, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein. Here at Hoover, Richard is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow. He's the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and he's also a senior lecturer at the University of Chicago. And Richard, it's October, and to political nerds like you and me, that means it is SCOTUS preview season because the Supreme Court has just started a new term. So I thought we would pick a few cases and get some previews of the conversations we're going to have uh, over the next, you know, over the next year. So first up, Richard. It's going to be an adventurous term. Oh, yeah. So first up, Richard, Moore v. Harper. This is the so-called independent state legislature theory case. So this is uh, the argument that state legislatures have the sole authority to regulate federal elections because of the elections clause of the Constitution. In other words, state courts play no part. Now, in this particular case, um, North Carolina uh, drew up some new districts drawn by by the state legislature, but they were struck down by the state Supreme Court in order to redraw them. Now, a lot of case law has occurred surrounding the election clause of the Constitution. So can you help me make heads or tails of whether state courts should be allowed to be involved? Well, it's a question. I think the answer is almost invariably going to be that they are going to be allowed to be involved. But the question is exactly the way in which that particular involvement is start to taking place. Now, the basic situation is that what the Constitution does is it says that the legislature in each state shall determine the way in which you select electors for the president and the people who are going to be electors with respect to the, uh, the electoral college. And so the issue is whether or not when these people ask, can they do whatever they want, whenever they want, in whatever way in which they want, so that the state courts have no use for they have no limitations on what it is the legislature can do. There are a number of people who take the very strong position that that happens. But on the other side, they're saying, look, a state legislature is part of a complicated system of state law. And what happens, therefore, is that the state uh, constitutional restrictions on what the legislature shall do continue to apply even to this particular grant of federal power. Uh, Then if you take that position that there is such limitations, the question is, can they do whatever they want, however they want to do it? And so just to flag one of the kind of troublesome issues that come out of the North Carolina Supreme Court, and it's a very tough one, is what you say, okay, the legislature can make sure that you cannot completely uh, gut the proportionate representation or choose grotesque districts when you engage in the exercise of this power for redistricting. Uh, But then what happens is they say, we don't like what you did. And then they say, we're going to do it ourselves by way of a remedy. So you come to the situation where uh, the state legislature has the power. It's struck down on constitutional ground. There isn't time, uh, according to many people, for the legislature to do another draft of this, which the court may strike down anyhow. And so the clause ends up reading. uh, What you really do is you end up having the state judicial system could determine what the legislature is. And somehow or other where each of the steps individually may look a little bit plausible, the idea that state interpretation can take the whole process away from the state legislature, if it whiffs, uh, is very, very troublesome. So then the question is, what makes you whiff? Why is it that these things go? And when you have state constitutions, they have all sorts of wonky clauses associated with their operations. For example, in a place like uh, Pennsylvania, where this issue also arose, is you have a fair elections clause. 
Now, is it possible for you to comply with the fair elections clause? Or is it possible for any court in the land to find some deviation from a fair elections clause when it doesn't have any discrete substantive content? And so the argument that is made in favor of the independent state legislature is better that poison than the other poison, because otherwise what will happen, no matter what you do as a legislature, it will always turn out to be an unfair election, and then you'll start getting things that happen. Well, what are the things that are going to happen? Well, the Fair Elections Clause may say we have to give extra representation to minority groups, whereas the Equal Protection Clause says you can't do that thing, or at least somebody could so argue. Uh, so as this thing starts to careen forward, uh, we don't know how this particular system ought to operate. And my guess is that you're going to see essentially the following kind of division. Uh, the liberals will find that the threat to democratic processes of letting a Republican legislature be completely unhinged as it is in North Carolina are too great to tolerate. And the conservatives will say the ability of having a court be totally unhinged and wreck the legislative decision is going to be intolerable. So each side will find that the other position on the extreme is not there. And then the challenge is going to be, can you find any sort of narrow way in which the courts could participate in this situation? And I can think of some, but I don't believe it will attract anybody on the court, which is to say, look, you cannot, the, as an independent state legislature, cannot do a couple of things. One is it cannot decide to change who the electors are after the ballots have been cast, even though the legislature can determine this. We're going to start to say, now that we have essentially a voting system rather than an electoral college, uh, it's a central part of that system that the electors who were chosen, uh, even if they don't deliberate, are the ones who deliver the votes. Otherwise, the system gets broken down. And if a state legislature wanted to deviate from that, I don't think it would be able to. And then if it turns out you had something which says members of one race um, have two votes for the members of another only have one, you'd strike that down as well. What I'm very worried about is having much more intrusive kinds of situations because of the complete transfer. So you can think of all sorts of intermediate positions. What you can't figure out is how these guys are going to put it together. Uh, you do not have very strong guidelines in this case. So I think it's going to be a pretty intense argument. If you look at the stuff that's coming out in the blogs, it turns out it's very hard to find anybody who has an attractive middle position. Uh, so like so many of these cases, my guess is it's actually going to be something like 3-4-2, and the two will be Kavanaugh and Roberts, and we are not quite sure which way they will go. And once we can't figure that out, we can't decide how this scape is going to be scoped. So pay attention to it because the hearing is going to be even more intensive. And by the time the oral arguments come place, everybody's going to have their own theory as to which way it's going to break. I don't have any. I just think there's too much indeterminacy in the system at this time. Can I ask the quick follow-up, which is how would um, a decision either way affect, do you think, 2024 were, say, uh, former President Trump to run again? Well, it's certainly not going to do anything with the Congress, the congressional side, uh, but I, I think it's going to be much less even if Trump runs, because what happens is most of the changes that took place in the presidential election were in response to the novel, novel conditions that were associated with COVID. So in Pennsylvania, when they decided to delay the count on the ballot under the fair elections clause, it's clear that you let more votes in and that probably on balance, if they were right in votes, favored the Democrats over the Republicans. I don't see that much happening this time around because it's not going to be a COVID-dominated election. They also, I think it's likely what's happened is that many state legislatures will have lost 
learn from some of the past mistakes that have happened, and they'll have a more detailed and articulated code, and they'll probably be more careful in giving it constitutional justification. So at a guess, I would say, unless the election is extraordinarily close, I don't think we'll have anything like the uh, sorts of doubts and debates that we had um, after this election. And remember, the, um, there are two ways to do this. One is you could say, uh, you can challenge this thing forever, which is generally terribly unwise with election. And the other thing you can say is, you know, we're not going to change the outcome of this election, but boy, we're going to try to change the way the system is done, much the way the Democrats have urged with respect to J6. You know, they want to make sure that the counting provisions are tightened up. So I think, in effect, the next time around, it's not likely to be decisive. Um, and of course, the closer the election gets, the more likely it's going to have some situation. But remember, in 2000, it was Chad's. That's not going to be the issue this time around. I do think that there's going to be more and more litigation. One of the pieces that, of course, I think has to take into account is Stacey Abrams. You know, she managed to keep this fight going for four years, and she finally lost in the in the courts. But uh, the willingness of people to challenge on weak grounds, I think, is greater than it's ever been before. The idea that one of these candidates is going to say, well, seems like I'm going to lose. I'm not going to fight this thing, which is what, for example, Richard Nixon said in 1960, even though there were a lot of grounds to challenge what happened in both Texas and in Illinois, uh, they didn't do it. But I think today we're more litigious. And if there are reasons to fight this thing, somebody will find a way to do it. And then I always tell people, you think you know how litigation is going to come out, but you're not as clever as a bunch of fevered work lawyers working on dexedrine at late at night, one of whom will come up with a theory that nobody ever thought of. And then the judges will essentially decide to think that that works well. I've been involved in too much litigation in my life to think that the process, when you get the stakes that high, looks anything like it's going to be linear. It's not. It's going to be filled with turns and surprises, and you have to hold your hats and hope that everything doesn't get wrecked along the way. Next case to talk about, I think somewhat related here, is Merrill v. Mulligan. Now, this is the Alabama redistricting case. So some, some statistics for you, Richard, here. Alabama has seven seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. About 27% of its pop state population is Black, yet only one out of the seven House districts is majority Black. Now, one divided by seven is 14%. So you might assume that 27% of the state, you're looking at probably two, two seats out of the seven should be um, should, should, should uh, have that representation. So it seems like this might be cut and dried, but the arguments made uh, against it are that, well, uh, the, the redistricting followed the rules that have always been in place. So help me help me figure this one out, Richard. Well, I mean, the first thing one has to do is to ask why it is that proportionate representation is something. It assumes that a vote only matters if it gets you elected, that a vote doesn't matter if it's in a district in which you're a minority, even though the way in which you vote and the way in which you contribute and the way in which you lobby people may well influence what your legislature should do. So um, you could start putting the puzzle. Suppose it turns out we took this 20%, 7%, and instead of having one majority district with, say, 55% and the rest scattered, you had two districts, each of which had 40% Black representatives, but not a majority. Is that better or is that worse? So much of it depends upon the way these coalitions start to form. That is really very difficult to know whether you need an absolute majority in order to have influence or whether somewhat we could do it. 
The other point I think that troubles me deeply about this is it kind of assumes that identity politics as a matter of race are going to absolutely dominate the day. Now, it may be true, but do we want to entrench that? So when we started to look about majority-minority districts back in 1964 and so forth, and all the way through the 70s, 80s, and 90s, you were looking at an electoral system, which was a national scandal. Uh, but if you look at the system today and you sort of figure out what the levels of participation are by race, it turns out black participation in Alabama, I guess, is at least as high or a little bit higher than it is with respect to white representation. And so I think, in effect, that the preoccupation with the minority votes is something which is sadly out of date. That's my own view. Um, I think that if you look around, you're going to see lots of people who disagree with me. Well, then the question is, how much freedom do you start to have? And you know, this is always very difficult. I think the days of long since gone where you can simply take a district and put it in any shape, form, or whatsoever. Uh, like in Shore v. Reno, having uh, districts which run down interstate highways in order to collect two groups of black people together. There is at least a loose understanding of a compactness requirement, which means that the uh, perimeter cannot be unduly large relative to the area of the district. And so what you're going to see is somebody's going to say in a narrow position, look, they followed all the rules. It turns out uh, there's nothing particularly un unkempt about these districts. They seem to be coherent. Nobody's trying to keep people out. Other uh, state legislatures and have its way. Then somebody else is going to come back and say, no, if it turns out that you can get the minority party uh, to devise a map which gives them the two districts which satisfy the compactness requirements, then you're going to be required to do that. At this particular point in time, we're not quite sure which way the rule is going to go. Uh, based on the early returns from the jabbering and commenting about the situation, uh, it's a kind of a traditional liberal and conservative split. Uh, the liberals are sitting there trying to maximize minority representation, and the conservatives are there trying to maximize sort of neutral principles in order to govern these kinds of things. Now, it does make a difference. I mean, there's no doubt if you're trying to figure out how you caucus, uh, you take the Democratic map, and it's now 5-2. And if it turns out you're relatively close, it means that the Senate can move in one or the House can move in one direction or the other. So I don't want to belittle the situation. My own view, and I've held this view for a long time, is I wish there were a way to get race out of these situations. I want people to think of themselves as citizens of the United States, not as representatives of a particular party. Uh, but I think it's fair to say that, if anything, uh, identity politics on racial matters is stronger today than it was 20 years ago. I regard that as a backward step, but many people regard it as a step for survival. So my guess is that I think Alabama will probably win this case. Uh, I don't know whether it's going to be 5-4 or 6-3, but again, I'm pretty sure I know how the three liberals are going to vote. I know how the four conservatives are going to go. It's back to Kavanaugh and Roberts. Roberts is generally, um, in the Rucco case, uh, taken a position that he does very little to stop the packing and stacking because he thinks it's all a terrible political question. He doesn't want to get involved in it. So my guess is that he will probably join with the four conservatives majority. And I think of 60, 40, maybe 70, 30, uh, that what will happen is Alabama will have its way. Last case uh, to talk to, or last issue at least, we have some tech censorship to, to sort through. There's a Google case, there's a Twitter um, petition for review. The Google case, Gonzalez versus Google. Um, this is regarding Section 230 of the Telecommunications Act of 1996, which prevents publishers from being liable for what's posted on their their websites or their platforms. So if you run a message board and someone posts something defamatory, 
you as the company don't get sued, but the person might. Now, there's this neat extension here, neat, and I say just because we don't really have the boundaries of 230 maybe maybe figured out, but it's what happens if Google's algorithms through, in this case, YouTube, pushes content that someone might be held liable for, for something that might be illegal or, um, or, you know, or wrong. So that's the issue at hand here is should Google be held liable? And I'm wondering, Richard, do you think we're going to start seeing some Section 230 uh, uh, limits being carved out by by the erosion. Yeah, erosion. I do think I I, I do think we will. Yeah, should it go away completely? Should it stay there? I mean, that's the political question. The construction question. The statute says no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker, i.e., held liable, of any information provided by another information content provider. Uh, so if you run the bulletin board, you're not going to be held liable. Uh, but what you're saying, in effect, is you're not just a bulletin board in this particular case. What you do is you selected which messages could go on and which one should stay off. And so it is not just a case of putting something up and letting other people decide whether or not to post. You have constant supervision and oversight. Well, they don't want to hold them for everything. So the argument here is if you, in fact, put something up that is targeted against a given group and that group suffers physical injury, some other serious harm, 230 ought not to be an insulated effect. Which way is this thing going to come out? Again, as a statutory construction matter, as originally understood, uh, the 230 immunity was meant to be blanket, but there have been enormous pressures on it as the techniques that are available uh, to the internet provider get greater, uh, that the willingness to go along with the 1996 total immunity has become diminished so forth. Um, what's going to happen is you will see a split. I'm pretty confident. Uh, what will happen is our liberal justices will say, look, we want to have more censorship that's going on on these things. And we don't want to find any way to hold these companies liable because that means they're going to be more reluctant to do things than they might otherwise be. And then we have the proverbial question as to whether or not what they're taking off is information or whether what they're leaving on turns out to be information, you know, a real battle when it starts coming to things like COVID tests and so forth. So they will, I think, be very leery about doing this and claim the legislature should do it. Some of the conservatives will say, well, I mean, it's not going to completely disintegrate the system. We're only allowing it in a tiny number of extreme cases where mayhem or murder or something like that followed. And we think, in effect, that we have to start reconstructing this. And so we're willing to say to push this at the edge. What's going to happen either way, I suspect, is a decision will come down. And then there's going to be more pressure in Congress on both sides to try to create the way in which things should go. And already we've had a number of very important kinds of cases about the extent to which various kinds of um, uh, social media platforms can or cannot be held liable for the things that they do or they do not post under these circumstances. And um, there's First Amendment arguments about how it is that the uh, uh, press has to be given free freedom, and then there are arguments that, no, this is the other way around. It's a conspiracy. All the media companies get together and have a standard protocol, or all of them are in cahoots with the Biden administration, so it's not private speech. So it's either an antitrust violation or government speech. On the other hand, uh, one case will not solve this problem. It's going to be going on for a very, very long time. Uh, but I think what's really happening is that the traditional status quo is under sufficient attack. Uh, that the court has decided to take this up. 
And this, of course, is consistent with the attitude, for example, that Justice Clarence Thomas has had with respect to this uh, some long time ago. I guess it's now about a year and a three quarters ago. I made this suggestion on a Wall Street Journal interview with Tunko Varajadon, in which I suggested, you know, if you look at the history of the common carriers, uh, these people do not have the absolute power to cut you off. Uh, what happens is that they have to treat this in a non-discriminatory fashion. And so there should be some liability in that fashion. It's a very controversial position. The recent cases have gone the other way, but they're not so recent to have taken into account the fairly charged and quite specific charges of cooperation between the government administration on the one hand and the carrier on the other. So all of those issues are waiting in the wings as well. The issue is too big to be solved by a single case. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Make sure to read Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, published on Defining Ideas over at hoover.org. If you found this conversation thought-provoking, please share it with your friends and rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. For Richard Epstein, I'm Tom Church. See you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcast or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.